Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Reckless or Righteous by Pastor Liz Rod. Being able to be here today. Father, we thank you. We thank you once and for all, Lord, uh, for this wonderful nation. We prayed for our nation today. But Lord, we are so privileged to live in this part of the world where we can come freely and assemble as your people and give Jesus the honour and the worship and the praise and the glory he so deserves. Today we sang some beautiful songs and Lord, I hope it delighted your heart because Lord, there is no one like you. You are beautiful, you are wonderful, you are powerful and we just give you thanks that uh, we have the word of God. So many places that don't have something like this or a device that they can have in their hand to be able to be free, to be able to read the word that you have given us. So we thank you. We come with grateful hearts. And today, Lord, we thank you that this is the word of God and we will celebrate it today in your house, in this place. Amen. Okay. Well, I have a revelation or two for you. One is I'm not going to preach from the book of Revelation because that's Sean's baby at the moment and that way I shouldn't get all the phone calls that perhaps he's getting to. um, So um, as I said, point one, point one. The other is that, um, you know, the, the Bible from the beginning to the end is all about Jesus. And I think, you know, Rob, you, you said something similar this morning, which was very reassuring. You know, I, um, I'm actually going to go all the way back to Genesis, just to be different. And Sean, better not say anything there. But I want to go back to, firstly, before we go back to Genesis, to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, it fascinates me, all the different generations, all the different people that are part of that genealogy of Christ. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And I'm going to stop there. Because all of a sudden, in this patriarchal collection of male names, we come across a woman, a woman's name. And I've got to tell you, when I started out as a new Christian, someone gave me not only a Bible, which was awesome, but they also gave me a book uh, called The Lineage of Grace. Now, I read that book, and I've got to tell you, I read about Tamar, and I thought, oh, wow. I thought my lovely Presbyterian little toes just curled up and I thought to myself, what? And no one ever taught me in Sunday school about Tamar, I can assure you. You know, the Bible is filled with very ordinary people who did very unconventional things. And I've come to learn as I've matured, not only to go ooh anymore because otherwise you'd be doing it all the way through the book, but also to know that we serve a very unconventional God. Because if he was a conventional God, he would have given up on all of us a long time ago, or perhaps that's just me. You know, uh, there's an interruption today in the, the midst of the Revelation series, 
And the book, sorry, the story of Tamar in Genesis 38, if you want to follow it in your Bible or your device today, is sandwiched right in the middle, just as Joseph's story gets going. You know, Joseph, as you know, with the coat of many colours, now that, that we did learn about in Sunday school, and, you know, all of a sudden we have this interruption in his story. His brothers have very kindly decided not to kill him, but instead to sell him on to some uh, Ishmaelite um, a caravan coming through that were taking people and things to be sold in Egypt. And, of course, that's how the, the children of God progressively end up in Egypt, much further down the track in Genesis. Um, but, you know, what I was interested in is why? Why is Tamar mentioned? Why is her name in the genealogy of Christ when so few women, there are only five women listed in there with about 40-odd guys? And it was a very patriarchal society. So why is her name important to be looked at and read about? You know, last week, Pastor Sean shared with us that no matter what's happening, you know, whether there are debates about, you know, the COVID vaccine, no matter what the news says, even, you know, this week we've seen uh, Melbourne, who's struggling enough, but then they have an earthquake. But God is sovereign. And, you know, every day I wake up with the fact that no matter what is happening in my day, in the world, in our nation, anywhere, God is sovereign. And, you know, it really is, he's bigger than our circumstances. I wrote that in my notes last week. You know, nothing stops his plans. When he has a course of action, it doesn't matter whether it's from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, he automatically went into that restoration plan for mankind. And from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we see that that plan is all about Jesus. You know, being a lover of all things historical, I decided I'd, I'd have a bit of a look through. And as I said, I, in my initial reading about Tamar, and it was a, a, a very much a, um, it's not fictitious, it's based on facts, that particular book, but there's a little bit of Hollywood in there, a little bit of expansion and a little bit of um, fluffing out into that story. So why is Tamar in the list? Didn't she solicit sex with her father-in-law? Now we're going to bring out all the big guns. Weren't her twin son, Perez and Zira, conceived from this sordid encounter? Does it make any sense that a woman who pretended to be a prostitute or a harlot could be counted as a righteous person? These were the questions in my early, early, um, less mature Christian um, walk that I wanted to know. I thought to myself, what was God thinking? What was he doing? You know, and then I realised as I went through the Bible how many dodgy characters there really are, and I'm one of them, but he's allowed to actually get up and speak today, so we're not going to say too much there. John Bloom, co-founder and a regular writing on a site called Desiring God, says Tamar is the sort of ancestor that most of us wouldn't mention when recounting our family history. But as I explored, I think she got a bit of a raw deal, actually. C.S. Lewis says, to follow our calling does not mean happiness, but once it has been heard, there is no happiness for those who do not follow. Now, she was a very determined lady. Without Tamar and her unconventional story and her unconventional acts, we wouldn't see the genealogy of Jesus Christ quite the way it is. Tamar's story not only exemplifies God's compassionate nature, 
and his sense of justice, but it can actually shock or even repulse our delicate Christian sensibilities. God will fulfil his purposes using whoever and however he needs to in the scheme of eternity. And so after some um, real, really deep thinking and some more reading, and I actually gave away the fictitious book and I got the real one out and had a really good look at her story. You know, Tamar was a woman of her day. They were pretty powerless. I dare say when she was married off, she was probably a very young girl and didn't have a lot of choice. Uh, she is included in the genealogy of Christ, as I've said. And, but her story is a powerful tale of endurance and perseverance in terrible circumstances and trials. I came to realise that really, she was really between a rock and a hard place, pretty much from the time that she was taken as a young bride to the time that she conceived those twins. But as I said, nothing stops God and his purposes from coming to fruition. Romans 8, 28, and this is something we're very familiar with and I'm very grateful for it in my life. And we, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those he called, he also justified. And to those he justified, he also glorified. You know, we're here because of Jesus and because of that genealogy coming to fruition. A.W. Tozer says, The Bible was written in tears, and to tears it yields its best treasures. Well, I've come to realise that Tamer's story is one of those little treasures that's just very quietly sandwiched between a bigger life of Joseph. It's no surprise that our story does begin or where 37 ends, chapter 37. As I said, Judah and his brothers have just sold their brother Joseph to a passing caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to sell their wares in Egypt. And uh, in verse 26 to 27, it's actually Judah who, who will be the father-in-law of Tamar that says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, us, let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. As we remember from the story, the brothers dip Joseph's coat in a, uh, the blood of a slaughtered goat. They take it to the father, Jacob, who refuses to be comforted. Now, meanwhile, we know that Joseph is sold into the house of Potiphar at one of Pharaoh's officers. I wonder if it ever crossed his mind when Judah was thinking, I'll sell my brother, that one day he would be back in front of his brother looking for mercy, looking, coming to get food. It's an amazing story the way it turns around. Um, You know, uh, I'll start with verse 31. If you'd like to just turn now to to the story of Tamar and Judah. In in verses 1 to 5, at that time... I suppose Judah, after all that's happened in his family, he decides he's going to shoot through for a while. This is putting it into paraphrasing, of course. And he decides to hang out with a certain Adullamite, not an Ulladullamite like Pastor Terry. I couldn't leave that one alone. And uh, this, this Adullamite is uh, a gentleman called Hira, Hira, Hira. Uh, you know, 
all of a sudden, he locks eyes on a Canaanite babe, daughter of Shua. Now, she doesn't get mentioned. It's always daughter of. He takes her in the biblical sense as a wife, and he conceives their first son, Ur. Now, she conceives again. They have a second son, and his name is Onan. And again, another son is conceived, and this one is Sheila. I don't know that many of our young men would like that name these days. It's a bit like being a boy called Sue, isn't it? You know, verses 6 to 11, we see Tamar come on the scene. And uh, Judah takes Tamar to be the wife for his firstborn son, Ur. In verse 7, and I'm coming back to the actual text now, but Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's pretty final, hey? Hey? So (laughs) when I read that the first time, I thought, wow. Now, I did a little bit of research about Ur, and I discovered he was a cat hater and one who makes unkind remarks about cats and even suggests cat sacrifices. No, that's not true. His name means watcher in Hebrew, but again, I couldn't leave it alone. Yeah. You know, of course, uh, with Ur killed by God, Tamar becomes a childless widow because there are no children. And, you know, that's a disgrace. For a a woman in that culture, in that time, her, her whole purpose was to look after her household and to provide an heir to the bloodline. So, of course, there would be quite a, quite a lot of shame for her because there has been no baby produced, no son. But there is a, a surrogate system that kicks in in those times. Uh, the Levirate marriage union was where the next son is then obligated to marry the widow, the childless widow. So Onan, the next, stunned, next son, sorry, he's probably stunned, um, is obligated to step up and marry Tamar but not only to marry her, but to sleep with her and produce an heir, but the heir won't be his. So he's not too crazy about this because the way it worked was the inheritance was divided into four parts. The older son gets a double portion and then, of course, there would have been another portion for each of Onan and Sheila. But uh, with the way this worked is if there was an offspring, not only does Onan get moved out of being the the surviving oldest son, but the portion that he would have got, that double portion, would go to the heir that he would produce with Tamar. So he's not at all crazy about it. And so he decides that he's not going to use contraception. And in verse 9 it says, But Onan knew the offspring would not be his. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to the brother. Verse 10, here we go again. It wasn't a good decision for Onan. Uh, What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. So once again, Tamar is now a widow and I should imagine she'd be being called a black widow. That's two husbands down, still no kids. And, uh, you know, I thought, actually, remember the movie Lethal Weapon? Well, she's sort of getting the reputation for being the lethal woman because all her sexual partners seem to be doomed to die. As you can imagine, Judah and his wife are not really thrilled about giving their next son to her in marriage. And so it is one of those situations where Judah is trying to find a solution. 
But, you know, as a woman of her culture too, ironically, her name, it means palm tree, something fruitful, but of course she hasn't been fruitful. And she's getting the blame for all of this, um, you know, what's happening to the sons. So through no fault of her own, she would have been seen as a failure. She's sent back to her father in disgrace for not fulfilling her role as a wife. Uh, Not only did she fail once, but twice. So in verse 11... Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, the thing about being, if you like, betrothed to the next son because of the, the arrangement, she's actually unable to marry again. We're presuming she could be still a, a reasonably young woman and probably would like to marry again. But she's powerless to speak out against this injustice. Uh, Verses 12 to 30 in our text, uh, starting with 12, we read that Judah's wife, still referred to as as Shua's daughter, dies. And after he is comforted, Judah decides to go up to Timnah with his friend Hira, the Adullamite, to see the sheep shearers. Now, from what I can gather and what I read, it's a bit of like an annual sheep shearing festival, wine, women and song and probably a great place to be comforted if you're a grieving widow. Now, Tamar by now has worked out that Sheila has grown up and there's no new bridegroom forthcoming. So she hears about uh, her father-in-law deciding to go up to the sheep sheep shearing festival. I didn't even spell it right in my notes. That's bad. Anyway, so she's going to do something about this. She decides she's waited long enough and she's decided that Judah's promise is an empty one. So off she goes and she sits at where the crossroads are on the way to and from Timnah at a place called Enayim. She takes off her widow's clothing and she dresses very heavily with a heavy veil, which was very typical of cult prostitutes. Now, the Canaanites actually believed that uh, there were two types of prostitutes. But but the particular type that a cult prostitute was or a temple prostitute was one that people would actually see as somebody who could bring favour. So sleeping with a a cult prostitute was quite a good thing. But, of course, Judah's not a Canaanite. Not only is this out of, uh, you know, Tamar's character because she's been a respectable widow, But it's pretty radical and it's pretty reckless because women were pretty much of no status and she certainly had no worth in her family simply because she hadn't produced their bloodline heir. So Judah sees her. We're up to verse 16 to 19 now. Judah sees her and not recognising her as his daughter-in-law, says to her, uh, the, the language is, I hope, not going to upset anybody, come, let me come into you. But that's what my scripture says. Tamar begins the expected negotiation. She said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? So Judah promises her a young goat from the flock. Now, Tamar wants a pledge until the the goat is sent. So he says, well, what would you like? Now, she's going to receive what is probably the, the best identifying items that you could have, and it is the signet, a cord, and the staff, she says, all these things that are in your hand, it's a bit like handing over your credit card. You know, when you go to a, a hotel, you've got to hand over your credit card in case you wreck the room. 
They've got hold of it. So she's got that guarantee, if you like. God's radical and certainly unconventional plan for the tribe of Judah to continue the bloodline is about to happen. Uh, in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and sound mind. Well, I think there would be a lot of women of that era that would think, yes, she might be, you know, stepping up and discarding fear, but the sound mind, they would probably judge her harshly. Judah, uh, she, Tamar puts her widow's garments back on after the, uh, the interlude, and she dutifully goes back to her father's house. Now, Judah, being a man of honour, sends his friend, the Adullamite, back to retrieve his pledge because, of course, that's, that identifies him. Everything about that is his identity. And he wants to hand over the goat as the promised payment to the cult prostitute. But she couldn't be found because, of course, as we know, Tamar has gone back to wearing her widow's weeds and she's gone back to her father's home. And everyone there says, no, cult prostitute has been here. I dare say he didn't want to make a big fuss about it, uh, being a man in position. Um, you know, there is uh, a, a little bit of an interlude there. Three months later, in verses 24 to 30, we read that Tamar is pregnant and immediately Judah assumes that his daughter has been immoral. He assumes she's been unfaithful and that she has not kept her obligation to remain chaste in her widowhood for this supposed promise of the next son. As he and, and as so befits his position, he orders her to be brought out to be punished. And he's not mucking around, I've got to tell you. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. You know, as I said, these were harsh times. But the trump card for Tamar is about to be, relieved, uh, be revealed. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, which is the seal, the cord and the staff. In verse 26, Judah just identified them and says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila, but he never knew her again. Now, Tamar's position now, of course, is assured. She has done what she set out to do. She's pregnant with not one child, but two. And so we have Perez, who is also mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. And Judah, incidentally, if you're counting backwards with me, is the great-grandson of Abraham. So he holds quite a, a, a powerful position in the genealogy. Now, my question is, was she a victim? Was she uh, or a very unlikely and unconventional heroine, a seeker of justice? I think we can learn five things from Tamar's story and we can apply them to our circumstances today. You know, we live in a country where, you know, we might get called a hater. I was listening to um, Martin Isles the other day, one of his um, podcasts, and, you know, we get called names and people think that we... We are judgmental and all sorts of things. But we really don't know what it's like to have a terrible life of persecution and to live in the times that these people, let alone the people who followed Jesus in that first century church. One of the things that I think we can learn from this young woman, who to me I think is grown in, thrown into one of the Bible's dysfunctional families, 
but she was tenacious. And I think that we need to be tenacious in this day and age. Be tenacious means to hold on to or to stick firmly to something, even if you experience hostility, suffering, or to have your resolve tested. You know, Tamar, and as I said, there was a lot to do with names in that day that were very important. She was expected to be fruitful. In marrying Ur, the firstborn, she was expected to bear the son that would follow him through in the bloodline. Of course, then when she dutifully and probably had no choice in it, had to marry the uncooperative Onan, she had no choice but to press on, to try to produce that bloodline heir in a very patriarchal society. It was probably not just a submissive role, but probably quite an oppressive role that she occupied. Even when she realises that Judah's not going to honour his promise, she finds a way to be able to do what she sees as her purpose in that family line. You know, we stand to stand tenacious in our relationship with Christ means we have to make him our focus. Because I tell you what, you take your eyes off Jesus, it's like Peter on the water. As soon as you take your eyes off him, you're going to see the circumstances, you're going to see the stuff that's going on around us, and we are going to sink beneath the water. In Philippians 3, 10 to 16, and I've taken this from the Amplified, and I absolutely love this, so bear with me while I throw it into my notes. It says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognising and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. And that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which exerts over believers, that I may so share in his sufferings, we're not crazy about that one, are we, as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope that I may attain the spiritual and moral, moral resurrection that lifts me out of from the among the dead, even while in the body. And I think, you know, for all of us, our new mission statement for the church very much personifies that. We all need to stand firm in our own personal relationship with Christ because to do whatever we're going to be called to do, even if we have opposition, I mean, some of us may find ourselves experiencing some quite significant um, persecution, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. The second thing is, you know, Tamar was pretty much abandoned. And I think, you know, um, as, as Christians in our nation, this was once very much the, the land of the, the great south land of the Holy Spirit. And to be a Christian wasn't something that people went, oh, now when you say to somebody that you're a believer, usually the first response, and just recently when I um, conducted a memorial service, I went back after the, uh, after the service and everyone says to you, oh, thank you for the service, but I'm not religious. I love that bit. It's always, you know, sort of just letting you know that you and I are on two different things. So, you know, really we live in a society that to a very large degree has abandoned Christ. And along with that, they see us as not being people that they might want to associate with. You know, um, a, 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 sorry, Paul 
goes on to say in that same passage of scripture, this is the other half of it, which I will read now. Not that I have now attained, that is the ideal, or have already have been made perfect, but I press on to lay hold of or grasp and make my own that for which Christ Jesus, the Messiah, has laid hold of for me and made me his own. I do not consider, brethren, that I have captured or made it my own yet. But one thing I do, it is my one aspiration. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the supreme and heavenly prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling us upward. Now, you know, Tamar probably, you know, well, not probably, she wouldn't have had the benefit of the knowledge that we have that we know about that victory that Christ has given for us. But she was a lady who, despite being abandoned by the family that she was trying to secure the bloodline of, she was just pressing on. So I began to admire this lady. You know, last week, Pastor Sean uh, spoke about the letter to the church in Smyrna, a, uh, a church that suffered persecution. They knew what oppression was. And as we know, after Jesus' death, there was a growing hostility to the early church. At first, they were just a bit of a nuisance. But after the burning of Rome, which Nero blamed on the Christians, and according to the historian Tacitus, he went on a rampage to kill Christians, addressing some in wild animal skins to have them pursued and torn apart by dogs, crucifying others, and some he impaled and set them up as garden lights as the evening closed in. You know, that puts our type of persecution, I think, into a, a very different uh, slant. In fact, I never knew what a Roman candle was, and I found out that that's what it meant. As, Christ, as the Christians professed a new king, and new kingdom Jewish leaders were quick to dissociate themselves from the radical Christians, Roman emperors also decided that they weren't going to tolerate the worship of another king, And so they had to stand firm. They were abandoned by their fellow Jews. And so they very much had to press on and just keep doing, just as our heroine, our unconventional heroine had to do. Uh, It says in, in to stand firm in the Lord. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come and see you or you hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. And this is Paul, of course, speaking too. You know, we live in a very protected nation, but we, you know, we can very much feel that we are, as the Bible describes as aliens. You know, Tamar came into the family. She wasn't, it wasn't a Jew, so she would presumably have had to change her belief system. And then she was scorned and she was rejected. And, you know, sometimes we can feel like that we don't fit and we're not meant to. We are meant to be not conforming to this world. So I think for Tamar, we can sometimes see ourselves in her position. That sometimes people can look at us and they think, oh, you poor people, you know, you're all uh, deluded. You are the people who are having to go to church. I have friends say that to me all the time. Oh, you have to go to church, don't you? But it's not that, is it? We love coming. We love to come and worship. But the world can see us as being out of sync. You know, the other thing was Tamar was adamant and she was absolutely determined. Even though she was powerless to speak out, 
But after several years, she wasn't going to sit around. She was going to do something about it. And so this unconventional heroine decides that she's going to orchestrate through a very, very unconventional way to provide Judah with an heir, whether he was willing or not. The fifth thing I think that we can learn is that Tamar was radical and she was a risk taker. And, you know, there are going to be times in our our Christian walk where we're going to have to be radical. You know, the world thinks we're pretty boring, I think. They think that, you know, we have no fun. They think we're the people who, you know, have these nice little get-togethers and come and sing a few hymns. But, you know, I think to be a Christian, and I think it's going to become more so, I think we're going to have to be more radical than ever before because I think standing firm is going to require us to be quite an army that needs to rise up. You know, she put everything on the line to achieve her goal, to fulfil her purpose, and it could have cost her a life. In fact, it was very much that defining moment when she was declared to be a harlot by her father-in-law and he was about to have her burnt. It could have been all over, not just for her, but for the unborn children within her womb. You know, when he, he's about to extract justice on Tamar, Tamar, sorry, there was no clemency in his heart. But all of a sudden, Judah is humbled and he realises when she identifies him as the father and it changes him. I believe that, you know, he had in that moment a moment where he not only saw that he was being unjust, but I also think that he actually had a moment that humbled him and I think it changed him going forward. You know, Tamar's unconventional methods of ensuring her responsibility to provide an heir, they were risky, could have cost her a life, but not only her life, but also the child. Tamar's circumstances and what seems to be the presence of immorality in her story would have us believe that perhaps she shouldn't have been celebrated in scripture. And yet she's given the honour of being the first woman included in Jesus' genealogy. The pain, the loss and the sin that she would have been subjected to would ultimately be redeemed by the Messiah in her family tree. She is noted in the Bible as the daughter of in the law of Judah, the son of Jacob, an ancestor of King David and one of the four women actually named. Bathsheba, even though there's a mention of her, she's listed as the wife of Uriah. But it is almost exclusive that genealogy, but Tamar is there. And so I think I'll just finish it today, if you will bear with me, just with one last scripture. And this one says, he who overcomes, some scriptures say the one who's victorious or conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The principal theme that I gained out of Tamar's story, even though it seems like a a funny little interruption in the life of Joseph, it was about divine providence, about the fact that, that no matter what, God will have his way. He was going to bring about that genealogy. He was going to do it his way and he used whoever he would to be able to do that. And because of Tamar and her courage, that genealogy continued to be able to bring it through to the wonderful saviour that you and I have today. So I'm going to just close in prayer 
And I'm just going to bring one little scripture from Revelation as I do. Revelation 5.5 says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And you know, that's where we are today. We are part of that victory. And so I'm just going to pray. And uh, if anyone needs prayer, perhaps you, you are struggling with your calling. Perhaps you're struggling with where you fit in, into the family of Christ. Or perhaps today you just want to have more courage when it comes to the fact that you want to step out in faith. Because so often we look around and we say, oh, well, that person can do that. Or this person can do that. That's not for me to do. But, you know, we are all called. And at some point that courage is going to be tested. So let's just pray together now. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have come so that we might be set free. We thank you that you are the one in whom we place our trust. We thank you for the victory that Calvary has bought. And Lord, as we look back from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we can see that in every generation that your heavenly Father has used all manner of different people, people from different nations, people even from different belief systems, but he has used them according to his will and purpose. And so we pray today, Lord, let us be those people, those people who will just focus on your will. Let us be those people who will just look at Jesus and make him the focal point of our lives, that we will be a people who will stand firm, that we will be a people who will understand why why we believe what we believe, that we will be ready with an answer as we're told to, that we will be a people who will not uh, be uh, those who go for that comfortable form of Christianity that will not stand. Lord, we pray. I, I pray, Lord, that we would not conform to the world, but instead, Lord, we would continue to be seeking after you, deep in your word and just looking to be able to be that light in a dark world. In Tamar's day, it was a dark world. In Jesus' day, it was a dark world. And yet, because of the courage of people who have stood firm in the faith, those who have fulfilled their purpose, we can come and we can be encouraged by their stories. Let us be tenacious. Let us be those people who are happy to be different to the world. Let us be those people who will proudly say that we are those who are co-heirs of Christ and children of God. And so we give you thanks. Jesus, you are beautiful. Jesus, you are wonderful. And we thank you that you are all-powerful. And we thank you for being here with us today, that you might open up your word, that we might share it. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.